This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Playing Amnesia. Clones of the Strong-Willed Pig. And the triumphant return of Ken's Bookshelf. Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts. But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm, uh, so say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon. A quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin. Oh yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it. If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out. Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon is available now, so take your place at the frontier of style today. You can learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of something. Robin, what are what are those triangles in the bowl? Who is that coming alive on the GM screen? I know I'm in the gaming hut, but somehow I can't remember a lot of vital details. Oh, I, I don't, oh no. is this a podcast? I don't remember. Oh, what, could what it be? We do every week. I don't know if it's a podcast, Robin. It, it's actually short and punchy and interesting. Maybe oh, it's not a podcast. Maybe possibly not. But. If it were a podcast, it would have beloved Patreon backers, and among those beloved Patreon backers would be Lauberfen, and Lauberfen, I feel confident, would have asked, Amnesia and other flaws, how can background and social flaws such as Amnesia or Dark Secret be reclaimed from abuse at the hands of min-maxers and power gamers and put to work to support character and story development. And I'm not saying you can't have character and story development if you are a min-maxer or a power gamer. I think that is a unnecessary dichotomy to pose. But yes, by and large, one would like people who take those social background points in games that offer you points for such things to have to actually flex those character and story development muscles that I am sure they were volunteering to flex when they took those points, Robin. That's what I'm sure. Right, because the min-maxing approach to this is to go, I'm going to get these free points, and I'm betting that the GM will never think to look at my character sheet that my flaws will be so annoying that they'll never come up, and they're basically free points. But for whatever reason, possibly because I've run a lot of horror games, my players, when they take things like Amnesia and Dark Secret, they know they're putting the arm into the uh, wood chipper. And, uh, and how, how do we stop power gamers from fulfilling the GM's every dream? <laughs> right. Hmm. How do I how do I prevent that bear from walking into the bear trap? I, I wonder, could I smear the bear trap with rich bacony extra points? That might do it. Amnesia and Dark Secret are particularly fruitful examples of how you can provide story development and ideally character development is kind of up to the player because the player has to go through the arc. They basically, they're giving themselves a, a Hollywood arc in the way that uh, lazy script writers and nervous producers all want that you begin the game with amnesia and you don't know who you are. And then at the end, you've figured out who you are, or you begin with a dark secret. And at the end, you or the other players or the world have come to terms with that dark secret. And you're able to proudly stand and say, I was adopted by the drow or whatever it is. And that I am under my grandfather's blood curse. And that is then brought into the mainstream of, of gameplay and acceptance. And basically you've bought off those points through doing the character work and players should always be encouraged to do character work. I feel that's part of what we're doing as role-playing, right? Robin is it's not just sit quietly and listen to Ken time. There is stuff that they by definition have to bring to the table or right. else it isn't proper role-playing. And ideally you shouldn't be bribing them to do this thing that is fun. Mm -hmm. And if 
they don't want to do that part of the fun, give them some of the fun they're looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I guess if a, if a power gamer or min-maxer gives you one of these things and you strongly suspect that they are just trying to point grub and they don't actually want to play that out because they never talk to other game master characters or <laughs> have never evinced any desire to have a plot line uh, prior, you can then deal with that in a couple of ways. And I guess there are uh, various ways to, basically this falls into the category of sort of GM wildcard, right? Mm -hmm. That it's like, hey, do something crazy. Um, I'm down with it. And assuming for the moment that the player is down with it, you can either do the more old school way that I would generally default to, which is, oh, the GM has a playground now. I can just dovetail anything I want into a plot and I can uh, let the person's past identity or the secret that they've suppressed or that they don't want to reveal. I can just let that come out at my convenience at a moment when I want something crazy to happen to make things interesting or to uh, lead the uh, characters toward information they are otherwise refusing to be led toward. So that's one way to do it. The other, I guess, more collaborative way is to sit down ahead of time uh, with the player and say, so do you have an idea for what will be revealed over time? And do you want to lay that out as a series of stages? And, you know, we can look at introducing these revelations at particular points along the way. And that gives the player authorial agency, which some players desire and others don't. Yeah. <laughs> and so you can figure out what they uh, want to do on that front. And the same thing uh, with a dark secret or anything that is an unrevealed aspect of the character that will be revealed in play. And that just the process of doing that may be plenty fun to that person, even if, you know, you don't get as far into the campaign to reveal every point along the way. And so at that point, it's one of those lovely self-solving problems. Yeah. I mean, the certainly, I mean, to maybe elaborate a little bit on my, uh, on my uh, answer at the top, those are great things from the GM's perspective, because what they do is they give you permission to involve that character in the kind of role that you normally put the non-player characters in the, Oh, I'm, you know, uh, the last scion of my haunted lineage. And instead of it being some NPC that everyone has to pretend they care about, it's your buddy, Steve. He's the last scion of a haunted lineage and his problems are now your problems and you have to deal with them. It's good. I think that if you're the GM, make that extra effort to make whatever they bought with those points be the fruit of that poisoned tree so that if they bought, you know, sixth sense, the reason that they are, have the dark secret of the last sign of a haunted lineage is that, oh yeah, all their ancestors had the sixth sense and they were way closer to the uh, veil of, of the afterlife than you are. And one of them crossed over and is probably an evil necromancer now from beyond the grave, but make it sort of tie into the thing that they bought with the points so that it's got an organic hole as opposed to a, a sort of a out of left field. Uh, let's see your dark secret is um, you killed Kennedy. Great. All right. Now we move on. And it doesn't really feel like part of the character as you've, as you developed it. And, and that I think goes sort of towards the notion of composing the campaign in a way that everything harmonizes. And that presupposes, I guess, a campaign with a single feel or theme or mood or or at least a single school of them as opposed to a more picaresque sort of standard f20 sort of thing where you know you're wandering around from place to place and in that case you need to make sure that the dark secret is something that's applicable more than just one spot on the map because if they can get away from you know i was raised by the drow and you, you know that's bad in the in the under underwoods but when you're off on the other side of the world amongst deserts, you've never even heard of the drought. They're like, yeah, whatever. We were all raised by weirdos. Welcome to the desert. So you need to make sure that that dark secret will continue to pay off uh, dramatically so that players can't do the picaresque version of turtling, which is fleeing the story. Right. Right. And, and I think you're starting to edge toward there's another category of flaws or things that buy you points and point build systems that I think power gamers and minimaxers if they are worth their salt in either of those categories, will actually tend to gravitate toward. Because if it is, you know, if the number of their rodeos exceeds one, they will actually have already figured out that the GM can use that in all sorts of ways that they might not necessarily be down for if they're just pure mm -hmm. uh, power gamers. And I think they will gravitate more toward uh, the relationship point grubs of, uh, you know, I'm part of this organization or I'm hunted by this or I have this dependent. And the bet they are making there is 
that you, the GM, will not be able to fit this into your ongoing story, that you will not be able to have, you know, Mary Jane get menaced in episode three because you're in the Gobi Desert, where, as you suggest, there are no drow and Mary, no Mary Jane. Um, and so I think th- that is actually the thing that you really want to look at as a GM is those. And so when you look at a list of flaws, whether it's amnesia, uh, whether it belongs to a hunted organization, whatever it is, just go, am I going to be able to fit this into my planned uh, campaign? One way to fix this is not plan your campaign until you look at everybody's flaws and then design episodes around yeah. them. <laughs> but another way is, which uh, the advantage of that is it does not break the implicit uh, contract given to you by the uh, designer of uh, GURPS or Champions. Uh, the other thing to do, though, uh, in, in a more collaborative thing is, you know, to be honest, this whole thing is taking place in the Hollow Earth. So just take a, a blank dependent and a dependent will show up once you're in the ho- Hollow Earth. How about that? And then when the player goes, uh, 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 how about a, a weak ankle? I'll take a weak ankle instead. He will know that you've, you've called their bluff. Right. I mean, the, the, the classic point by three points disadvantage, quote unquote, is overconfidence. They, <laughs> they love to take that one. And for that, you basically just make sure that they get shot all the time first by the, by the bad guys. It's like, I don't know. He just seemed real confident. I figured he was a, a badass. So we shot him first. <laughs> uh, and again, this is the sort of uh, mechanical tit for tat play that one hopes that uh, we, you've been through enough rodeos together that you've moved beyond enough players taking over confidence because they, yeah, they legitimately want to play the Errol Flynn swing on the chandelier, uh, show up with a, a deer over his shoulders, start a fight with the prince type guy. And then you as the GM have to roll with that by making that overconfidence a genuine flaw, either by having that character be more likely to get arrested by the guards or in other ways, you know, attract attention without the sort of, uh, you know, immediate juvenilia of the orcs just hate confident people. That's really why they're orcs. Although, right. you know, that's always good fun. Right. And and if you've seen someone take that power and make sure it never hurts them before, or, uh, and this is another problem with a lot of disadvantages, use that power to hose everybody else and justify your doing what you were going to do anyway. <laughs> then you can have a, a word yeah, with, the, right. with the GM. And if, if you have some flaws that annoy you or uh, that you have either because they're abused or just because you have difficulty fitting them into uh, your narratives, every game, every single trad game that's ever been published has a little paragraph hidden away that you didn't read in the introduction that says, you can change anything you want. You're the GM. Well, this is one of those times when you should absolutely do that if there are flaws that uh, don't work yeah. for you. But amnesia? Yeah. Dark secret, those will always work for you. Yeah, those flaws are the um, uh, are the Land Rover of flaws. They'll go anywhere, do anything, and carry anything you want to put in the back of them. Well, and on that note, it's time for us to get in a Land Rover and uh, drive uh, over this rocky terrain. Uh, oh, it's not rocky terrain at all. It's a beautiful, hand-tooled commercial. And then on the other side, I bet there's another exciting thing to look at or talk about. Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers are just the heroes to confront it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age adventure by Wade Rocket from Palgrain Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on characters' icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF today. Cardus listeners can use the voucher code HASHCROWN21. That's CROWN21 to save... 15% 15% at palgrainpress.com slash shop. That's crown of access for 13th age. The chatter of the teletype, the zing of the Chiron going across the screen, other things that don't make noise in this debased era. I guess there could be a ding of a text alert on your phone now. Anyway, all of it is telling you that this segment is ripped from the headlines. 
And uh, to help us rip, to to hold the newspaper firmly for us, we have beloved Patreon backer Robert Wolf, who asks, do the six clones of strong-willed pig portend salvation or destruction for humanity now that the original has departed? And what I love about our beloved Patreon backers by now, Robin, is they'll just find some nonsense, <laughs> drop it in, and expect that we know what they're talking about, what what nonsense they're on about. And right. sure enough. Well, we, we did get a link. We did get a link, which is nice. And the link is to a BBC article about a pig, a pig named Strong-Willed Pig or Zhu Jianqing. I guess in Chinese, uh, please do not correct me. Uh, I looked up how to pronounce this and utterly failed. Yeah. So uh, I apologize to the relatives of the pig if we mispronounce his na- her name. We apologize to all speakers of Mandarin and pigs. Anyhow, Zhu, as I like to call him. Her, her, it's a girl. Different uh, data points different ways. One story said that it was a castrated male pig. So maybe it took on a different gender in Chinese news articles. Well, one of the things I guess we'll have to say up top is the factual basis of articles translated from Chinese that originate in the Chinese press and then they're then put into English, especially kooky interest stories, the accuracy of them may have, let's say, a quantum factor. Yeah. So anyway, this pig, Zhu, was born in 2006 and at the age of two survived the terrible Sichuan earthquake in Sichuan province, which killed 90,000 people. The pig was buried for 36 days, survived on a bag of charcoal and drinking rainwater, came out a uh, very, very skinny. Uh, they said that Zhu was more like a goat than a pig when uh, Zhu emerged. And then because the Chinese government needed something to be a symbol of we didn't screw up and let 90,000 people die in an earthquake in the 21st century, they said, look at this hero pig. Look at this strong-willed pig. We love this pig. And the companies branded themselves with the pig. They were encouraged to. Pig got a music video and became a minor celebrity as a symbol of, of Zichuan resilience, that Zichuan will dig itself out even of preventable disasters caused by communist negligence. That's what Zhu Zhikwang will do. Yeah. It's not up to the government to have uh, up-to-date building codes. It's up to us to be strong-willed and dig ourselves out after eating charcoal. Eating charcoal and drinking rainwater, which, quite frankly, you know, after the Cultural Revolution, probably a probably a bonus. You get the charcoal. But anyway, big deal. Pig got bought by a museum in Chengdu, apparently for $438, so... Maybe the so blue major was off celebrity, the celebrity we're talking here. <laughs> yeah. But Zhu was cloned in 2011, 2011, and six uh, Zhu's, six little clone pigs appeared. And they said in the news article, uh, they even had Zhu's original birthmark. And I have a lot of questions about that, but there we are. That's entirely how, how cloning and reliable and articles work. Exactly. So, uh, Zhu prospered in a museum uh, life, although it was not apparently a, a great, you know, palatial museum. But no, wait, wait. I found a, a, an account by someone who went to see the strong-willed pig and noted that uh, her uh, surroundings were uh, pretty Spartan. It was bars and concrete. And to the extent that it was great, it maybe had a grate in the floor. So it was, again, maybe slightly low rent, a world celebrity we are dealing with here. Or certainly low rent zookeeper. Right. Uh, Or low rent museum. Who can say? Anyhow, regardless of such privation, uh, Zhu got uh, big and fat. After eating all that charcoal, she had some catching up to do. Exactly. Uh, Had depression baby syndrome and had to go on a diet and then died, uh, I guess, earlier this year. Right. And that was it. Died at the age of 14, which is. A hundred uh, pig years old, I guess. Yeah, so that's so that's a good run. It's a good run, especially given the the, the bumpy start at the beginning. The clones, uh, Robin, you found out that the clones have been genetically altered to never get enormous, so that they can't be eaten. Uh, they won't be slaughtered as food. Yeah, genetically altered to only grow to fifteen kilograms or thirty three pounds. Again, questions are raised. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be the one raising them. And they were sold each of them for uh, sixteen hundred dollars. So the museum presumably made uh, something of a, a bargain after buying one pig for $438 and then well, cloning you have to them and take out the cost of cloning. Yeah. Which I assume even for a Chinese pig is more than 
eight grand. Well, it's it's like a Kickstarter. The number you see is not pure profit. That's, right. Okay. That's yeah. gross, not net. But anyway, who bought those pigs, Robin? Did you find out who owns the six clone pigs? Uh, oddly enough, that's when the, the trail starts to go cold. Oh, uh, no. As, as it is said. Cold pork. Right. Yeah, that's not delicious. That can never be delicious. And no. Uh, also, no one has ever eaten a small pig. So no, they're... it can't be done, Robin. Right. If you if you look at every recipe for suckling pig, for example, the recipe says, let it grow enormous and then kill it. They yeah. never say, kill it when it's small and will fit on a tray. So, th- the question then is, uh, there are uh, six clones, and obviously, you don't have to look up anything on the internet to know that these are designed to uh, continue on uh, the strong-willed pig's magical symbolism of resilience and strong will. It says it right in the name and also hope, right? That the pig was a a symbol of hope for everyone. And this implies now that there's six little micro copies of hope and resilience and strong will uh, possessed by persons unknown. So you could just have one of the cloned pigs be a MacGuffin in a scenario where there's uh, someone who's been phenomenally lucky managed to, uh, wend his way to a great uh, business empire since uh, 2011 after acquiring the pig. And he knows he's got to hold on to that pig or let's say other officials will snaffle his big company away from him. And so if he has a uh, an awful, corrupt, terrible company, you could be the one trying to uh, liberate the pig and then safely spirit away to, I don't know, some nice nonprofit or something that, that right. uh, needs <laughs> someone, to someone be... working with Tibetan refugees or... Or, or, or Uyghurs or something. Right. I should point out that this feeds in haha, to the fact that six in uh, Chinese numerology is a lucky number and it's specifically a lucky in business number. Right. And pigs themselves are lucky. So that's like double luck. Mm-hmm. Extra luck. And uh, while we're talking about six, the closest thing I could find, sadly, I guess it could be a double trigram. So the pigs themselves might have been a big old I Ching cast. And the notion is that it's six straight lines or six broken lines because they're a clone, probably straight lines because it's a a strong willed pig. So that's one possibility is that all of those pigs together make that trigram. The other possibility is that each of the pigs represents one of the realms of existence from the gods on the top through demigods, humans in the middle, animals, hungry ghosts, and then demons on the bottom. And so each of those pigs might be part of the universe in the same way that the strong-willed pig themselves embodied the will to live of, of the good people of Sichuan. Right. And uh, the strong-willed pig was born in uh, 2006, which is uh, just before a year of the pig, meaning the prior year of the pig is the one that would uh, pertain to her. And so that makes her a wood pig. And uh, the traits of the wood pig are exactly the, the magical traits that she uh, embodies. Uh, strong and flexible like bamboo. What could be more flexible than surviving under uh, rubble for 36 days, uh, eating charcoal and drinking rainwater? And uh, that also she has warmth and generosity. So clearly she and her clones are embodiments of uh, positive qualities. They're keeping the world together. They're helping us survive. And so uh, the way that this could posit destruction for humanity, of course, is if some enemy of the world uh, were to try to gather up all of the uh, the pigs and despite uh, what they have been engineered for, then goes ahead and devours hope. And when you're devouring hope, you're not concerned with the fact that these are now relatively aged small pigs. You're not doing it for the taste experience. You're doing it for the destruction of humanity. And so... I don't know if we want to have a uh, scenario series where each one ends in the rescue of a separate pig. That is a little much, I think. Right. In fact, probably all you need to do is rescue one pig in order to foil the the great working. So, you know, you have a chance to to mess up a couple of times and uh, and still spirit uh, one of the uh, pigs away from uh, whatever this force is. And you can you know, posit an alien or, you know, an ancient lich or hopping vampire that's actually menacing. Any of those mm-hmm. things uh, could be uh, responsible for trying to uh, gather together and uh, and destroy the uh, pigs. Another possible answer is, of course, that the in its latest crackdown, that the government itself is now uh, gathering up the pigs and taking them away from the uh, previously uh, favored oligarchs in order to collect them unto themselves. And so if you want to strike a blow for democracy, you have to uh, 
uh, rescue and of course take safe care of the pigs. You you don't want to you know harm them because that would blow up everything, but you do want to get them away from the people who currently have them. And it is fun in a treasure hunt type situation to have a treasure that is alive and that you can't just you know, stuff in the, you know, uh, unpressurized cargo hold of a plane and you have to spend a little thought in how you're getting it out. I do like the idea if you've got, rather than having six adventures all with the same pig, that each of the pigs does represent one of those six planes of existence and that it's the demon pig that's turned against the other pigs. And it's not, you know, even necessarily the hopping vampire or the party oligarch or whoever that's the bad guy. Or, I mean, they are bad guys, but they're given power because the demon pig, when they got him, he's all, hey, you know, let, let me turn you to the dark side of, of, of wood pig. And they're able to use, uh, to leverage an evil pig. So some of the pigs you either have to destroy or you have to exorcise. Or maybe if you put the god pig against the demon pig, the god pig will, will cure the demon pig and exorcise the demon part of it. Or maybe it's just, you know, that's, that's just part of the cycle. You can't have only good things. You have to keep the evil pig alive too, because if you destroy it, then there's a hole in the world where demons used to be. And if Lovecraft has taught us anything, it's that that's not actually a good solution to something. No, you want to put, if there's a pig shaped hole in hell, you got to put the pig back. Right. And I guess having the celestial pig and the infernal pig battle each other at the end would be your big CGI finish where the human actors just stand mouths agape watching what's going on for uh, 10 minutes of animation. And when we've reached the exciting CGA climax of uh, one segment, it's time to head right on over into another. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Don't forget to remember to join such beloved Patreon backers as... Stephen Hammond. Alan Wilkins. Derek Heimforth. Dave Stecco. And Jack Gulick. Well, folks, one sign that things are beginning to return to uh, what passes for normal in the vaccinated zones of uh, the United States is that, uh, Ken, you have once more had an opportunity to go out as a free-range exchanger of money for books and uh, acquire great piles of things on a trip. Uh, we had a virtual Ken's Bookshelf a while back where we talked about things that you had ordered over the course of the pandemic. But here you've brought back some real live books that you went out and acquired face-to-face -face in actual bookstores. And these bookstores were all in New England. So these come from, as we enter Ken's Bookshelf, these come from Colophon Books in Exeter, New Hampshire, Seven Stars Books and Raven Books in Cambridge, Massachusetts. There's a theme to the names of a lot of these bookstores yeah, that make me suspect you made them all up and didn't go anywhere. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what I that's what I do, Robin. Now I just make up bookstores. You know, actually, that would be great. I should be making up bookstores. <laughs> you, you went into the dreamlands, and the dreamlands <laughs> is just all bookstores. That's yeah, proper dreamlands. Dream labor for books. Just cats and bookstores. That's all there is in Ken's dreamlands. Sorry, everybody. Uh, you also went to the went to the original Raven Books in Northampton, Massachusetts. And uh, the one that closed in March 2017. Yep. Whiteley Antiquarian Book Center, which I went to two other times. 
and then tried to find, but it turned out it closed. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, that's that suspicious name. It's amazing that it existed at all. That definitely was one that you only found uh, in the dreamland. That, that I tulp it up. Exactly. And then uh, I was in Greenfield, Massachusetts, spending not nearly enough time with the wonderful Emily Carabas and her partner, Epidiah Ravical. And they, of course, are delightful. And when we left them, we only had 45 minutes to possibly go to Roundabout Books in Greenfield, Massachusetts, just down the street from their house. And someone in the car, I don't want to name names, but someone in the car said, Ken, we don't have time to go to another damn bookstore. We have to go back to your sister's house. Now, that nameless person turned out to be wrong. We did have time. (laughs) But that is Roundabout Books in Greenfield, Massachusetts. So Roundabout Books, you have a year to uh, get your uh, collection Full to bursting, because I'm coming back for you. So if if Roundabout Books goes out of business, we'll know uh, who in the car was responsible for them not getting we a crucial injection of cash they required. Of capital that they needed in this time, in this parlous era. And in fact, you've got so many things that they're going to be another Ken's Bookshelf later on. And as intrepid investigators know, these are already double segments. So there's another two segments that we'll get to. Uh, later on. But let's get started without any more further ado with Have You Seen a Personal Introduction to a Thousand Films by David Thompson? Yeah, David Thompson is, I think, probably the dean of film writers now, certainly one of the best film writers. And this is just his take on a thousand classics. And if you are already familiar with the classic, the essays are are short because obviously there's a thousand of them in this book and the book is thick, but it's not that thick. So, you know, you read about the third man. Are you going to get a ton about the third man from David Thompson that you didn't already have? Maybe not. But guess what, Robin? There's 999 more films in there, and I guarantee I haven't seen all of them. So this is just a great sort of a a, a chatty. He describes the film. He gives a little bit of an insight, just sort of his quick takeaway. This, If David Thompson were were me, I would say, David Thompson, you just recycle blog entries. But I'll bet that David Thompson uh, really thought and uh, in in lapidary fashion carved these beautiful essays. Have you seen a thousand blog entries? Exactly. Not not quite as good. And and Thompson is willing to be idiosyncratic. So takes is sometimes the word. Sometimes you'll get an infuriating take on uh, on something that uh, you uh, feel differently about. Mm-hmm. Which is part of the fun of criticism, right? That's uh, You get someone as smart as David Thompson who's wrong, then that's that's where the, 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 the real knowledge comes from, right? Yeah, I mean, some people just like to have their opinions mirrored back to them and get angry when that doesn't happen. But none of those people listen to this podcast they do not anymore they all quit <laughs> they all ran away they got mad at us <laughs> it's some sort of evolution in, in, in action, yeah. I guess. John Ford by Peter Bogdanovich. Bogdanovich knew Ford and uh, of the uh, great directors is also the uh, great film scholar and writer. And so uh, I've read a different Ford biography. Uh, What was your sense of this one, having merely caressed it? Uh, I've merely caressed it. It's it's a small book. It's not a full John Ford biography. There's some interviews there's, uh, you know, you know, stills. It, it's not quite uh, Truffaut Hitchcock, but it's sort of that. But it's it's very short and it's very accessible. I think that he probably enlarged it later. But it's a good little introduction to John Ford. Again, I don't know that I'm going to need an introduction to John Ford, but Bogdanovich, obviously, as you say, knew Ford. And there's going to be some insights in the interviews, even if it's nothing I didn't already know in the sense of, oh, yeah, right. John Ford was one of the greatest film directors of all time. I get it. Right. And, and the big, fat, established biography that will come up first in your Amazon search is excellent. Uh, next, we come, uh, speaking of horror, to Vincent Price Unmasked by John Robert Parrish and Stephen Whitney. Uh, he was an interesting person off the screen as well as on. So uh, if this is a well-written biography, I bet it will be a hoot. I'm sure it will. That is basically why I bought it. That and it was on the uh, half-price shelf. But yeah, Price had a, a very full and exciting life. He was a, a gourmet cook. He was an art collector, very in, involved in, in the art world, in addition to having personally lived through and in some cases ushered in at least three different schools of acting. So uh, he, he's quite a character. This is, I believe, a pretty favorable biography. I wouldn't say fawning, but I would say they are pro Vincent Price at the beginning and stayed pro Vincent Price throughout the whole process. It's not going to be a warts and all type thing, but uh, Vincent Price is, is just fundamentally interesting and he's tied into a lot of other uh, fun cultural circuits. So it goes nicely with 
the Christopher Lee autobiography that I have. Right. You can, you can read it for pride because he exactly. was uh, proudly by. Next, we come to Old Masters, New World, America's Raid on Europe's Great Pictures by Cynthia Saltzman. And I'm, am I correct in guessing that this is about uh, when in the late 19th century, Americans got money and went and bought all of the art and then built museums to put the art in? That is exactly what this is about. And not even all Americans, it's specifically the rich Americans in Boston and New York and I think Philadelphia. Uh, so uh, when you check the index, the, the great collector of the Impressionists, Potter Palmer, is not there. This, I think, is mostly literally what it says, the old masters. This is the Americans going and buying up all the Rubenses and Rembrandts and whatnot. And obviously, the art world itself is pregnant with story possibility. It's uh, something that's always good fun to, to set stories in. And you combine that with uh, creepy, possibly haunted paintings. You, you, you got a gold mine right there. And it's just fun to see Europeans sputter incoherently with rage as Americans make off with their great treasures. That's just good fun. From the visual arts to uh, the literary arts and the theatrical, we come to Shakespeare and the Folktale, an anthology of stories edited by Charlotte Artiz. I can't guess from the title what this is, but you're going to tell us. Yeah, it's basically uh, just what it says. It's an anthology of stories. There are a number of Shakespearean plays like Measure for Measure or Comedy of Errors that are not just based on older Roman plays, but are that those plays are based on even older stories or that those stories have been spread around the Western world so much that they've come back to us in more than just the Shakespearean form. And this is an attempt to look at the sort of underlying story structure of this subset of Shakespearean plays. And it's it's good fun if you're thinking about Shakespearean dramaturgy or Shakespeare as someone who taps into some avatar magic. It, it's good fun there. But it's also just a nice collection of folktales as well. Uh, next, we come to Atlas of the European Novel, 1800 to 1900 by Franco Moretti. I'm guessing this is uh, locations mentioned in and around the uh, writing of uh, the novels of this period. Some of it is. I feel like Moretti, and this is one that I have actually delved into a good bit because it just seemed like a weird title. Moretti, I think, came to this thinking that he wanted to do a book and didn't quite figure out what book he wanted to do by the time the book was done. Because some of it is very much, I hate it some of it happens. is very much, here are the places that Jane Austen mentions. And some of it is, here are the places that these authors were from before they did a thing. Here are the places that they set their novels. And so it's a lot of different approaches to, uh, to basically the understanding being that because the European novel beginning in 1800 begins to become mimetic as opposed to romantic in, a, in the sense that it is portraying life as it is actually lived, uh, allegedly, it is becomes more place focused and more place centric. So the castle of Otranto just happens wildly anywhere, sort of Otranto. But by the time you get to, you know, Jane Austen, even though the, the little village in Emma is made up Wakefield, it is very much an observed place in the landscape of Britain. And that this happens in France with uh, Victor Hugo. This happens over and over and over as the Western European uh, literatures get started. And the attempt that Moretti is making, I believe is to relate the equally emerging field of physical geography to this mimetic tendency in the novel. So it's not just a book of maps. It's a book about the process by which the novel becomes tied to geography. And in that way, it's also very interesting, but trying to tease out a through line in it is a job of work. Let's just put it that way. And you'll have to figure out whether this goes in your lit section or your cartography section. But I bet the next one, Mapping Boston by Alex Krieger and David Cobb, definitely cartography. Cartography. Atlases. It is basically uh, a bunch of maps of Boston going all the way back to Puritan times and going forward to, you know, whenever the book came out, mid 21st century, I guess. It's just a big old coffee table book for people who like Boston a lot, or in my case, people who like maps a lot. It's very handsome uh, reproductions of these maps. And of course, obviously, if you are looking at, say, Pickman's model and saying, I wonder where those ghoul tunnels could have been. Well, mapping Boston is basically created just for you. So are these uh, wicked smart maps? They're wicked maps. They're wicked maps. Uh, so next we come to a, a section where you've uh, repatriated from New England a bunch of books about the Midwest. And uh, it seems like a coincidence, I'm sure, but also there's lots of bodies dropping in these books about the Midwest. 
Uh, first one is Big Bill of Chicago by Lloyd Went and Herman Kogan. I should mention that these that this run of books is all from Colophon Books in Exeter and that the bookseller there is a former Chicagoan. And when I walked in with a White Sox hat, wanted to do nothing but talk about how great Chicago was. That's how we roll. <laughs> this is why you wear, all of you, your White Sox hats. Exactly. And he did make sure to say, oh, did you see the, the Chicago gangster books? And it's like, all right, now I did. Thank you. <laughs> did he give you the Chicago discount? He gave the Chicago discount of, um, uh, we'll ship this to your house. Yes, that's the Chicago that's discount. That's a good discount. That's, that's a, a discount. good one. Yeah. So, uh, Big Bill of Chicago, of course, is a biography of Bill Thompson, the late great last Republican mayor, or you might say latest Republican mayor, but also the last Republican mayor of Chicago, the character who got reelected by promising to punch the King of England in the face. If he ever saw him, that's the guy that big bill was. He was, <laughs> but Ken performative politics is brand new. It never happened before. He also did a great deal of, of, of good work for the African-American community in Chicago was basically the last obstacle to the very, very serious redlining that happened after he was turfed out because, again, blacks in the 20s were all Republicans and it worked out really well for Big Bill. He famously, during Prohibition, campaigned on being wetter than the Atlantic. It's another great <laughs> thing about Big Bill. Basically, one of the greatest figures in Chicago history. Happy to have a copy of a biography of him. This biography is actually fairly old, uh, so it is in the era when to write a biography of a Chicago politician, you found all the cool stories you could and strung them together. So I'm, I'm very excited. So there's no embarrassing uh, truths and fun ruining. In well, there the embarrassing truth is that he was giantly corrupt, but that's also all the fun stories. So, right. I mean, the, the, the fun ruining of Big Bill would be that he was a smaller than life, honest man. And we all know <laughs> that's a lie. So, right. <laughs> Well, also, you know, voters electing larger than life cartoonish figures is also brand new. Brand new. So never happened. Never happened. Hair on fire panic. So uh, now I'm not going to hold against uh, Richard J. Schmelter that there's a bit of subtitle overrun here. There's like three subtitles fighting for supremacy in Chicago Assassin, colon, the life and legend of machine gun Jack McGurn and the Chicago beer boars of the roaring 20s. I feel like Richard J. Schmelter didn't have quite enough confidence in the title because the life and legend of machine it was gun his publisher. Let's blame publishers. <laughs> the life and legend of machine gun Jack McGurn. You'd think that would sell the book by itself. It certainly sold it to me. <laughs> it's got machine gun and McGurn in it. Just stop there. Yeah. Machine Gun Jack McGurn was one of the hitmen. He began, I believe, working for the Irish mob and then switched uh, with mediocre success to working for the uh, Southside Capone mob and eventually was killed, sadly. But it was a, it was a short and a happy life when it was. He was also, uh, I believe, a jazz impresario and a professional golfer. And he wanted to be a professional golfer. He wanted to get out of machine gunning people, especially after his side lost. And uh, sadly, Capone just wouldn't let him retire to play golf. So there we are. He wanted to switch for something where you prosper by uh, hitting fewer shots. Exactly. But again, He's a, a, a seminal figure. I'm excited to know that there's a whole book you could write about him. I really didn't think there was a lot that was known. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that this will not just be, you know, 500 pages on the St. Valentine's Night Massacre and two pages on the rest of McGurn's career. Next, still in the Midwest, still in crime, but no longer in Chicago, John Dillinger slept here. Crook's tour of crime and corruption in St. Paul from 1920 to 1936 by Paul McAbee. I believe that longtime listeners to the uh, bookshelf know that I collect single city studies of organized crime. St. Paul was famously one of the open cities where the cops basically just looked the other way regardless. And the mobs agreed to split it out paying, you know, whatever the, the overage was to the local guys, but they could do pretty much anything that they wanted as long as they did it in other cities and then brought the money to St. Paul. So in that way, St. Paul and Little Rock, which is another uh, city very like that, were like the American colonies during the great era of piracy, where go and be a pirate somewhere else, but take the gold and spend it in Rhode Island. So go be a bank robber anywhere you want, take the money and spend it in St. Paul. And of course, St. Paul, by far the good twin in the Twin Cities, certainly the, the, the cute twin of the Twin Cities. So anything that makes St. Paul uh, good and exciting and fun, a book I'm behind, over and above the fact that, yes, indeed, John Dillinger did, in fact, sleep there. And uh, finally, in this section, we come to 
History of St. Louis Gangsters by John Abel. And I bet this is uh, essentially the same thing, but with St. Louis. Yeah, except that St. Louis was not a wide open town. St. Louis was owned by its crime family. Sadly, second to the Pendergast ring in Kansas City in Missouri crime. But still, St. Louis was a, was a thing. I look forward to John Abel telling me what exact version of local crime syndicate they had in St. Louis before everyone ignored them and things went national in the 40s. Well, I said previously that uh, bookshelves come in two sections. We're at the end of this section, but uh, after this exciting commercial message, we'll get back with more Ken's Bookshelf. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes in entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing as promised we're back with more ken's bookshelf Here's to Crime by Courtney Riley Cooper. And you have a note here that this goes all the way back to the 30s themselves, to 1937. Yeah, Courtney Riley Cooper was a crusading journalist. He wrote a lot of exposés and whatnot. And in this one, he's basically writing what a crusading journalist in 1937 believes or believes you want to read is how crime is actually done. So it's, here's how bank robbers operate. Here's how white slave traders operate. Here's how the sex trade operates. Here's how the drug trade operates. So it's really sort of a breezy, tough guy look at crime as it was experienced maybe not as it was practiced, but certainly close enough for uh, role-playing work in the era of Trail of Cthulhu. So if you have wanted all your life to do a Trail of Cthulhu game that centers around a series of bank robberies or a drug running ring, there you are. Here's to crime has all the data you could possibly want on that topic. Dark Eagles, a history of top secret U.S. aircraft programs by Curtis Peebles. Yeah, this is another one that I've actually uh, delved into a good bit because my current game is taking place in 1955 and I wanted to see if there was cool adventurous planes happening. Turns out that Dark Eagles is not a broad history of all experimental craft, but specifically of the craft that were put together in black programs. And so it begins with the Era Comet, the first American jet fighter, and then runs through the U-2, the Blackbird, and all the way down to the modern day Aurora, which might or might not be a thing. And Curtis Peebles is a great aerospace historian. He wrote the first good book about Area 51 and the first good book about the UFO cult. Uh, the UFO belief system, I shouldn't say cult, from an, uh, an outside perspective that is not just look at these idiots. It's more of a trying to understand what's happening. So Peebles is, is very good on, on, on those topics. And then when he turns to uh, something that there's actually historical grounding on, he takes off and, and does a really good job. But it's not a every experimental plane. It's just the ones that are in the black program. So it's the Era Comet and then the ones that uh, Kelly Johnson does in the Skunk Works. And then, you know, onto the, the modern era. So it's, it's limited, but it's limited to stuff that is the highest and coolest of, of aerospace and espionage uh, together. So what, what could be better than that, really? And, and I can't imagine that any of these had uh, UFO sighting disinformation around them. No, surely not the Aurora, the black triangle plane that flies around or the, uh, I believe the, uh, one of the, the stealth fighters is in there too, which is another black triangle that did not at all have any UFO 
information or the program where they flew Soviet fighters out of Area 51 and then had to make up a reason for why these weird lights kept happening? No, that would never happen, Robin. That would never happen. No. Uh, and I'm sure it also never happened in relation to Soviet X-Planes by Yefim Gordon. This is much more the other version where it's every single experimental plane uh, that was done going all the way back to the 20s and then all the way forward to the, to the 80s. It's an alphabetical encyclopedia, which is somewhat less useful in this era of Wikipedia than a chronological or thematic one would be, but it's still very, very uh, comprehensive. Lots of pictures of, of weird Soviet planes, many of them in the 30s. One, uh, I think everyone's favorite, is the biplane that could carry a tank, except it probably couldn't. <laughs> but, but other than but that, it other could carry than that, a tank. it could carry a tank. Sure. Yeah. It's terrific. And then there's lots of other things where, uh, as, uh, Gordon points out on the preface, if you're got an unanswerable body of dictatorial bureaucrats who don't have to listen to aerodynamic science, you get all kinds of cool possible planes, many of which don't work at all and waste everyone's money. But there we are. But you tell your superiors they worked and there you go. You've got a biplane that can carry a tank. Yes. Although there is there is one period where a lot of the designers got liquidated in, in the 30s. You'd see, oh, but sadly, the plane was never completed because the designer team was liquidated. And that that occurs a lot in these uh, explain description. So However, in that period, everyone was being liquidated. Yeah. So. Stalin did not have a mad on for aerospace designers. They were just on the list. He, he had a mad on for liquidating people. Yeah, he just liked the liquidating. Yeah. From 20th century vehicles, we go all the way back. The global origins and development of seafaring edited by Athol Anderson, James H. Barrett and Catherine V. Boyle. Yeah. This is a academic text. It's put together as a bunch of different essays on the just just what it says on the box and so it goes all the way back to neolithic times and then as far forward as the um uh, seafarers in polynesia who basically you know blow out around 400 AD and settle the rest of the pacific ocean uh, so it's it's all of the seafaring that we know about there's one essay on early mediterranean seafaring that looked very good but by and large this is just a topic that I've got a lot of other books on, uh, seafaring, and this being a academic press anthology of papers, it's a million billion dollars if you try and buy it on Amazon, but if you buy it from the good people of Colophon Books, especially when you come back after lunch while your wife is still enjoying her sandwich, <laughs> they'll, they'll slip it across the table to you uh, for a reasonable, if perhaps still a little bit pricey amount of money. The old sandwich ploy. Yeah, there was no there was no way I was going to get that book any other way than buying it from Colophon. They knew it, and eventually I knew it. And now Sheila knows it. Uh, next, we come to Kings and Kingship in the Hellenistic World. Right up your alley. This is from 350 to 30 BC by John D. Granger. Yeah, this is a thematic study. It's not a history. You know, Granger has written uh, a history of the Seleucid Empire, and I think he's written one of the Ptolemaic Empire as well, which is more standard narrative history. This is him trying to piece out what are the roles of the Hellenistic kings. Um, obviously, Alexander the Great breaks the mold of what's allowed for Greek monarchs because he borrows a lot of stuff from the Persian tradition. And then... The successor kings, who are not ruling Greece, even though they are ruling many Greeks, have to sort of keep walking that weird little line between a Greek king, who is more like a mean president, and a, <laughs> a Persian autocrat, who is more like, you know, <laughs> an autocrat. And uh, the, the, the way that they navigate those social, economic, and political roles is what Granger is looking at. He's looking at the whole institution and then giving, you know, examples from his voluminous understanding of history. So what does it mean if a king builds a city? Does it mean that he owns the city? Does it mean that he gives the city to the citizens? Does it mean that they are in a feudal relationship to him? What is what is that about? Uh, when is the king worshipped? When is the king not worshipped? Lots of questions that they were all figuring out for themselves there in that uh, in the Hellenistic era, and uh, Granger is doing a, an institutional study as opposed to a historical study. So it's really it's really poli sci, not history, but it's uh, the best kind of poli sci because it's about successors of Alexander the Great. And uh, from the specific to the general, we go to Vanished Kingdoms: The Rise and Fall of States and Nations by Norman Davies. Norman Davies is a well-known uh, Europeanist, a hist historian of Europe, and in this case, he's decided to write the histories of a bunch of countries that, as you note, uh, vanished 
uh, going all the way back to the Visigothic kingdom in Spain and uh, through uh, the old Clude, which is his name for the Celtic Pictish successor state that ruled uh, the western half of Scotland until the Vikings conquered it. And no one ever talks about it because it wasn't Anglo-Saxon and it wasn't Viking. Burgundy, of course, everyone's favorite vanished kingdom is in there. The uh, Grand Duchy of Lithuania, the Kingdom of Galicia. And then as we move forward in history, we get more and more Ruritanian and ridiculous. But he does end because Norman Davies is my kind of historian with the Soviet Union. A vanished kingdom that no one remembers or cares about. So good for you, Norman Davies. It's a, it's a big, pretty book. It's got lots of, of fun combination of narrative and geographical history. Davies is just a terrific writer. Um, I recommend all of his books, but this was one that, uh, I didn't have. So I got it. Now back to the specific rise of the Tang dynasty, the reunification of China and the military response to the steppe nomads AD. 581 to 626 by Julian Romain. It has long been one of my contentions that Chinese military history is ridiculously understudied. Everyone reads Sun Tzu and then they act like, well, now we're done. And China, you know, the West had many, many more developments in military history after Vegadius. Same thing with China and Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu is great. Everyone should read Sun Tzu, but then maybe know something about the next 2,500 years is all I'm asking. So this is a military history as it, uh, as it is described. It's from, I believe, either uh, Sutton or Pen and Sword, one of the uh, specialty military history publishers who basically just go into my dreams and write down their uh, acquisitions catalog from that. Uh, so it's always a, a joy to find one of their books uh, in a used bookstore. And this is, you know, the the Tang Dynasty's solution to a problem that did not even stay solved in China, much less in the rest of the world, until the invention of gunpowder. So it's a, it's a fascinating era, and it's an interesting attempt, I think, to go down and do proper military history in an area that is ridiculously understudied. From the specific to the very specific, Saracenic Heraldry by L.A. Mayer. This is a book that I picked up, and I thought, this is a crank book. Because there's no such thing as Saracenic heraldry. That's ridiculous. And I put it back down. And then I said, what are you doing? It's a crank book. Pick <laughs> it back up. <laughs> and I picked it back up and I read the uh, the author's introduction. And it turns out there was Saracenic heraldry. There were arms that were abstract designs that were given to the holders of certain offices in the Mamluk and Ayyubid sultanates. And at least some of them were passed on father to son. And Mayer says, this is heraldry. I don't care what you say. And he then has basically gone to every collection of pottery, of, of manuscripts, of actual arms and armor that was available to him in, I'm guessing, 1920 and put all of that evidence together. And so it's it's a reference book. It's not going to tell you an awful lot, except, oh my God, there was Saracenic heraldry. Um, and then some of the sort of general principles, but a lot of it is just, here is this, you know, Ayubid, uh, under governor that you've never heard of. These are his arms. Next. So if it's, if it's abstract, is it like two triangles and a, and a circle? A lot of it is that some of it is specific emblems that represent the, uh, office that they held. So if they were the treasurer, uh, often they would have a bag of money. On their shield, uh, there's uh, one that's like a pen because they were uh, part of the scribes. And so they got uh, a pen on their shield. So a stylized icon was also. Yeah, right. some of it is, is, is stylized icon. Some of it is abstract imagery, obviously being Muslim cultures. There's not like heads and goats and stuff the way that there is in European cultures where you can depict the creations of the almighty and just keep on keeping on. It very much looks like. The Ayyubids and, or not the Ayyubids, the Ayyubids basically pick it up from the Crusaders because the Crusaders have got all these dandy shields and the Ayyubid generals are like, how come we don't have dandy shields? We're dandy. And, and that sort of becomes their response to European heraldry. And then it develops within the Ayyubid and Mamluk context. And then I believe the Ottomans sort of, they don't stop the process, but they don't do anything to encourage the process. So it, it really is just that period, that sort of 1100 to 1600 period in uh, the, the nearer Middle East. Uh, next, we come to Empires of the Week, the real story of European expansion and the creation of the New World Order by J.C. Sharman. 
this is a couple of red flag birds in it, so it could go either way. Yeah. Is it a crank or reliable? No, this is real, but it is the subset of real that is Indian historians. And uh, these guys are mostly Indian and they, you know, are educated usually in London or in uh, British universities. And they read the sort of assumed heroic narrative of the West and how we sailed our superior navies into the Indian Ocean and shot everyone up and the locals fell all over themselves to give us solid gold goodies because they were scared of our ships. And many Indian scholars doubt that story. And they certainly doubt it for the period before Plassey uh, up until 1757. And so Sharman's argument is basically that European expansion was bribe money paid to European sailors by real governments in the hopes they would go away. And that their general disinterest in naval technology does indeed undermine them, but it does so far later than the conventional histories would have you believe. So it's basically, it's mogul reclamation in, in Sharman's case, but he's also going to make the same argument of the Ming and about uh, probably the Ottomans. And then, and the notion being that until the creation, certainly of the rapid firing musket, but possibly, uh, and this is a guy named Hedrick Smith came up with this idea in the eighties, the creation of the railroad, European imperialism was basically just piracy. And I think that this is Sharman taking Smith's argument and expanding it to talk about what was actually going on in the Mughal Empire at the time that these Portuguese and Dutch and British and French were all dotting around the, the coasts and making trouble for everybody. And finally, for this, this half of the half of the bookshelf, we come to the seen and unseen worlds in Java. 1726 to 1749, History, Literature, and Islam in the Court of Pakabukwana II by M.C. Rickliffe. So we end on super specific. Yeah. This book is a history of the reign of the Sufi monarch Pakabukwana II, who is, as the title says, considers himself to be king of both the seen and the unseen world. And there is a rebellion against him and Dutch invasions of him at basically the same time. The rebellion has often been cast as a fundamentalist Muslim rebellion against the king. It is also, I think by Rickliffs in this case, cast as a native Javanese rebellion against different guys, imperialism, uh, because his, his kingdom does get split up and the Dutch are, are all there. Rickliffs's, uh, attempt is to look not just at Dutch East India Company records, which is what virtually everyone who writes about Indonesian 18th century history does, but at Javanese court records, and then try to interpret that using more modern understandings of the relationship of Sufism, both to the political world and to the spiritual world, and to take more seriously Pakubwana's self-conception as a divine ruler, not in the sense of divinely ordained, although it was also that, but as a guy who's part of his job was to make sure that all the spirits and ghosts and demons in Java stayed where they were. And the degree to which that is not necessarily the best framework with which to battle rebels and the Dutch. It's a basically, I think, an anthropological book, but it's an anthropological history book. And it's about a era of Javanese history that I quite frankly knew nothing about and can barely Google anything about now. So uh, hopefully when I read the book, I will know more than anyone except possibly M.C. Rickliffs about that middle bit of that middle part of Java. And of course, all the other readers can of, of MC Rickliffs. Yes, obviously I will only be one of the, of the myriad of, of Rickliffsians as, or Rickliffs heads as we're called. <laughs> yeah. I'm fascinating stuff about an era that I know nothing about. What, what's better, right? Well, speaking of fascinating, we close can on an exciting announcement. We have now passed another reward goal tier or whatever we call them on, on Patreon. And we've cracked the $2,000 level. And uh, having cracked that level for as long as we stay above it, and uh, I'm not saying we will forever because it looks like there's some special makeup donations pushing us up there. But while we're above that level, uh, we must fulfill our previous perhaps rash promises to edge uh, ever so slightly in the direction of having actual show notes. So during this period, while we remain above this level, I will keep a letterboxed list that will have every film we mention on the show. And Ken, you will have a Goodreads list of every book that we uh, mention on the show. 
And we're starting this, of course, with Ken's bookshelf, because you've already got these all typed in, so you're ready to go on those. And uh, I cleverly made sure that I didn't mention any movies yeah. in this episode. But that wild. can't possibly hold out over time. No, I don't think so. Eventually, it will even up. I think I mentioned some movies, though, so you still have to go back and find them. If, if you actually full-on mentioned a movie, I am duty-bound to put it in the letterbox list. And on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, wrap up. We'll be back uh, next week with uh, more segments about, uh, I don't know, all sorts of uh, gaming and, uh, I don't know, uh, succession, maybe a CIA guy. You never know unless you uh, have already written the script and then you do know. But whatever it is, it's going to be stuff. And we are going to talk about it because that is the pledge that we have made to you in addition to this rash nonsense about keeping Goodreads pages. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Memorialize the strong-willed pig by joining such intrepid Patreon backers as... Michael Curtis. Scott Stefanski. Craig Maloney. John Rogers. And Ross Iron. Ireland. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Combine your love of cats and your love of tentacles with our latest design, Tentacle Cat. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>